0: In Chapter 3 of our Missing Cat saga, Kate gets invited to do some digging.
1: I felt like we had to know if it was her or not, and so Carl and I decided we were going to go and we were going to dig up this dead cat's body, and that we needed to take our son Cosmo with us.
0: The third time Rita left Chapter 3, Missing Rita, coming up on Interstates. But first, an Indiana author writes a novel set in Indiana, and it wins a National Book Award. Violet Barron talks with Tess Gunty about why it was important to set her novel in her home state. Then Austin Davis brings us some poems about people living without housing. That's all coming up on Interstates right after this. Welcome to Interstates, I'm Alex Chambers, and I'm going to turn it right over to Violet Barron, who talked with novelist Tess Gunty about the Midwest, social class, and women being protagonists of their own lives.
2: Tess Gunty's debut novel, The Rabbit Hutch, got significant critical acclaim when it came out last year. And I get why. It creates a world where each character is thoughtful and weird, and chooses eccentricity over likability. It takes place in one apartment building where they all live out parallel lives, And that building is in the fictional Rust Belt town of Vaca Valley. Gunty modeled it in part on her own hometown, South Bend. The book's protagonist, Blandine, is young, smart, beautiful, and seemingly going nowhere. She exits her body on the very first page. We see her and her town through the eyes of both old-timers and newcomers throughout the book. And those interwoven stories explore themes of home, belonging, class, feminism, and the absurdities of life in our current moment. It also speaks honestly and devastatingly about what it's like to be a woman or a girl just entering womanhood in a world that seems to be taking as many steps backwards as forward. I spoke with Gunti via Zoom to hear some of her whys and hows behind the story.
3: I've been writing for fun ever since I was really little. It was just something I enjoyed doing and I continue doing it throughout high school and college but i had never read a book that was set in the rust belt and i think that when i was small i internalized this narrative that the lives that happen there the the narratives that happen there are not worthy of attention of of external attention and i think it took me a very long time to understand the particular danger of that message i think when you believe that the narratives around you and within you don't matter um you're divested of of political will and creative will but around the time I was kind of twenty, twenty-one, I started to realize that the absence of this fiction was a very good reason to contribute some.
2: Yeah, you bring up this sort of political aspect to this right away. And I'm curious if you see this book as part of that raft of stories we got in the last five plus years, like Educated, you know, Hillbilly Elegy, maybe even The Glass Castle, these personal and family oriented stories about working class white communities that we don't hear about as much.
3: Hmm. I I haven't actually read either of those books, but I suppose I was I started writing this book the year I moved to Brooklyn, um, and I think I needed about a year of distance at least from my home in order to start to see it more clearly. And one thing that came to me during that time was um, a new sense of kind of protectiveness and tenderness toward the place that I don't think I could feel free to experience until I was free of it. And I did notice that there was a A dismissal of this region that i think i felt when i lived there but i never saw it up close until i was out of it and i saw um you know i was in more elite communities on in coast in coastal cities and i think that it was uh, partly the frustration of of encountering that dismissal that motivated me to write i mean i remember going to i had already been writing the book for a bit but i went to see a performance of bolero The New York Philharmonic. And I sat next to this woman who was in furs and she sort of looked like she'd never left Manhattan. When she asked where I was from, I said, Indiana. And she gasped and she said, I didn't know anyone was from Indiana. (sighs) Did you turn the lights out when you left? And it was the most cartoonish version of an attitude that I think I encountered in much more subtle ways um, Mm -hmm. here and there. Not to say that I think this is like the pinnacle of oppression. I just think it, it was interesting to me to encounter the dismissal.
2: Yeah, that sense of place and how different people respond to it is so palpable in the story. And I'm curious how place sort of acts as a device. You know, the character Moses comes to Vaca Valley, and he's sort of responding to the smallness or small timeness of it. And now, you know, you've lived in these big places, right, like New York and L.A. Actually, my story is the opposite, right? I came from New York to Indiana. So in your mind, how is the placeness of Vaca Valley operating in the story?
3: I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to set it in a fictional city was that I think if I had set it in my my real hometown or any other city in the Rust Belt, like Gary, Indiana, Flint, Michigan, Youngstown, Ohio, all of which influenced uh, Vacaville tremendously, I would feel immobilized by the task of doing it justice or creating a, an objectively true portrait of the place. I think precisely because there are so few narratives that are you know, visible on a national scale about these places that I'd feel tremendous pressure to be perfectly accurate in every possible way. Mm-hmm. And I knew that was, that was just impossible for me. So setting it in a fictional city allowed me to treat place more as a kind of atmospheric challenge rather than a a transcription challenge. And what I was trying to evoke most strongly was this kind of purgatorial atmosphere that I encountered in my city, and then any other city that I that I visited that had a similar history? I would feel that sensation of the afterlife of a kind of waiting afterlife, an um, land between realms that was so palpable in in all of these places. Really, it was the effort was to evoke the emotional sensation, um, and then of course I pulled on things that were real, some things I made up, but but that was the main. Relationship I had with with uh, creating a place.
2: Yeah, it's super interesting. The idea of the place as a sort of purgatory or purgatorial moment, you know, right? Maybe between what it was when the factories and the companies were really strongly present, and what it will be, or you know, what new commerce might come. You know, and did you feel that growing up in the state?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I remember. I didn't really learn much about the automobile company in in South Bend's case um it was home to Studebaker automobiles for about a hundred years and then they abruptly closed in the 1960s that was about 30 years before I was born and my family wasn't from South Bend they had moved there from elsewhere in its heyday Studebaker was the largest car manufacturing facility in America but I didn't I didn't know that what I did know was that I felt extremely haunted. Uh, from childhood onward, by something. And I didn't, and I, I saw it everywhere. It wasn't just in my household, it was, it was everywhere I looked. And when I, w- I went to Catholic school, and when I was maybe 11 or so, the, the teacher, this religion teacher, told us, she introduced us to the idea of purgatory for the first time. And she described it as a place of indefinite waiting and eternal longing and unquenchable thirst. And she said that you would never know how long you're going to stay there. And um, and pretty much everyone went there, she said. <laughs> and, and so she made us memorize this prayer to like liberate a thousand souls or something every day from, from purgatory. And she would keep a tally of all the souls that, that we had liberated. And So the whole, the whole exercise was fairly absurd, but it was also um, when she was describing this afterlife, I thought, I recognize this place and I feel like we're already there. And it kind of, it gave a term to all of the longing, the waiting, this no man's land uh, that I saw was both emotionally and geographically in terms of the landscape, the architecture, but also in people's expressions and postures.
2: No, that's very cool. I can tell you're a writer talking about that. That would definitely stick with me too. So I'm curious if you know that that was a really deep description of place and how it's sort of factored into the story. But do you see yourself or neighbors or friends growing up in some of these characters? Because they're so richly developed.
3: I certainly see um, myself in, every, in, in all of these characters. I think um, even though none of them kind of superficially resemble me, I I feel very present in all of them. Of course, my emotional data is what I'm drawing on to evoke theirs. but I, I find it very difficult to write about people that I really know. I think I can translate experiences from my own life or from others into fiction, but I feel like I'm violating someone if I ever um, really transcribe their story into into fiction, even with their permission, it just feels kind of invasive. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I was really good friends with some of my neighbors as a child, and many of them, I mean, I grew up in a sort of lower, lower income neighborhoods, and my family... You know, we didn't have much income, but I did have a lot of resources that my like the people around me didn't have. And I was very, very aware of that. I think, you know, I had two caregivers that were present. I had access to education. My mother worked in schools, so we got free tuition. And I think, you know, a lot of my friends were dealing with things like domestic violence and substance abuse and um, really extreme forms of intergenerational poverty that that I certainly noticed. And so the consequences of this kind of structural neglect were very, very visible in my community. But then also I went to these schools where, you know, they were Catholic schools, they were, were more expensive. And so most of my peers there were from very, very different worlds. They were from the suburbs, gated communities, high income lives. Um, and it's it really felt like we were experiencing two completely different places. And then also I worked at a, a farmer's market. I worked at a bakery when I was in high school and a little bit into college. And we had a stand at the farmer's market, so I would go there a week, three times a week. And it was a really social environment. People would just stop and and talk and want to tell you, you know, about their lives, and especially among, I think, the older people who who visited. a lot of them felt very lonely and kind of left behind by others. And so they would just sit and tell me their life stories. And all of those stories, none of them are replicated in the book, but th- that was very much the sort of emotional soundtrack that was present for me as i was as I was writing
2: also curious about gender and how gender factored into the story. You have some very strong female characters and also some very strange female characters, right? And all of them are dealing with being a woman in various different ways. The main character, Blandine, is dealing with like an abusive relationship that she was in when she was very young, and she's still very young. <laughs> And the mother character, Hope, is dealing with postpartum anxiety in a very intense way. And her husband is supportive, but he doesn't know how to be fully supportive. The way we see perspective and agency in these characters does feel new to me. And I wonder if it feels new to you and why you chose to invoke womanhood in those ways in the story.
3: Yeah, I, it was, I think this is one of those subjects that I, I can't not write about because it so influences the way that I inhabit the world. You know, I'm the only girl in my family. I have three older brothers, and my dad was actually—he's a sociology, he's a sociologist who's, who's kind of interested in the socialization of masculinity, particularly violent masculinity. And so, I grew up thinking a lot more consciously about masculinity. And um, my dad was always trying to rewire uh, those socialization patterns in my own household. So he was always encouraging my brothers to sort of express their emotions and cry, and to not, you know, to be, to be thoughtful of others and all of this. And yet, so I don't think I really started to think about the socialization of femininity until very consciously, until I was uh, in my twenties and I was, you know, maybe teens and starting to experience a lot of extreme forms of sexual aggression and sort of um, gendered expectations, gendered management of power. And then, as um, the Me Too movement sort of exploded, uh, that was right around the time I was I was beginning this book, and so it was making me reassess a lot of experiences, like like so many women and. You know, people of all genders, really, who are starting to reassess experiences they had had um, when they were younger. And one thing that really frustrated me about uh, growing up, specifically within the Catholic Catholic communities in the Midwest, which were extremely patriarchal, obviously, was how limited I felt. Really, both the socialization of masculinity and the socialization of femininity were. It was it was as though we were just told all of us were told that we can only express a few qualities and we could only fulfill a few roles. And I think this was specifically uh, frustrating to me as a woman feeling like I was constantly, constantly reduced to my body and my appearance and male validation rather than uh, my, my mind, my, my interests, my other qualities. And so it was a bit of wish fulfillment to write a young woman who was so intent on defining herself um, through her curiosity, her, her intellect, her mind, her interests, her activism. And it really kind of actively refused all of these efforts that the men around her are making to pull her into their lives as a peripheral character. She's she's insisting on being the protagonist of her life and she's insisting on defining herself on terms she can control and terms that seem valuable to her.
2: Yeah, it's funny because that's sort of trending now as an idea. Right. Main character energy. I see that here. I'm also curious about the multiple character structure of the book. It's very interesting how you use this line of the apartment building as a device to sort of meet all of these different people in different places in their lives. How'd you come up with the idea for that and how do you think it operates in the book?
3: Yeah, it was a few things at once. I think um first of all i was living I was living in an apartment building that was uh you know the walls were very thin and i could I could hear all these lives playing out around me and and I was so intensely curious about what was going on. So it was, again, it could maybe be a form of wish fulfillment to actually um, examine each life uh, around, you know, within a building. But even as a child that struck me very intensely, like living, you know, eight, I think my house was about nine feet away from the the house next to mine. And I was friends with the girl who lived there, but I was always struck by how you could live in such close proximity to people and not really know anything about their lives, people across the street. And so... That was happening, but also I was, um, I was, I do. have you ever heard of Building Stories by Chris Ware? It's this kind of, it's like a collection of comics, um, some of which don't even have any words, but you can read them, you can experience them in, in any order, and it's about the residents of this apartment building. And I found it so, so moving and so, it really activates your imagination in a kind of thrilling way. So that was really inspiring. And then I was really, really drawn to polyphonic fiction at the time. I was reading a ton of contemporary polyphonic fiction. And I loved the form because it felt so so much like an ecosystem where you could get lost. You were kind of trusting the reader to develop their own experience in this place. And uh, it was kind of like structured with a dream associative logic rather than a sort of straightforward beginning, middle, end momentum or traditional plot structure. Yeah. All of those reasons combined i think i was also kind of trying to find a way to resist this pressure i felt through social media through history everything to um to be very sort of self forward to be persona forward um mm-hmm. there's so much auto fiction that i love but i didn't feel like that was a form that i i felt at home in as a writer so this was a way to sort of reach toward a more collective narrative rather than narratives that reinforce the kind of rugged individual nuclear family america oh. ideal
2: The book has gotten a lot of buzz. You know, it's really gotten a lot of critical acclaim and people are excited about you as an author. And I'm curious, given what you said just at the very beginning of our conversation where that woman was saying, like, oh, did you turn the lights off when you left Indiana? How do you feel people are responding to the fact of the book as a story about the Midwest uh, and about these characters and these stories that we tend not to care about beyond the Midwest? As they sort of turn their attention towards you, do you feel that? Is it a dissonance or does it just sort of work?
3: I mean, there's so many things. Like, first of all, I am just surprised. Like surprise is really an understatement. <laughs> I, I have so many friends who are writers um, and I think I had extremely tempered expectations for what this was going to be like. I, I know so many, it's it's nearly impossible to make a living as a literary fiction writer and it's very, very difficult to get published at all. So I thought just getting published was um was my goal. And so the attention was extremely, extremely unexpected. I will say that I was most concerned about the reactions from people in the Midwest. I really wanted to make sure that I didn't violate. I, I guess you can't really go about life like you, you can't be a writer worrying about violating anyone's narratives about their place because you you there will always be someone who can find something to you know to pick a fight about in your work, it but. Makes sense.
2: Yeah, it makes sense to want something that feels true to like a majority, though, right? Especially as you're telling those stories.
3: Yeah, exactly. I re- I really didn't, and I think I did also want to resist any um, narratives that this was like the definitive voice of of anything, of anywhere, of anyone. I didn't I didn't want to represent anyone but myself. This is just like one imagination that produced a narrative about a set of experiences that were really limited by my own my own life. So. I think, if anything, I really hope that this encourages more um, more fiction from from places that are neglected and from people who are, who are neglected. And I think in some ways what's odd is that even though the Midwest and specifically the the Rust Belt is really underrepresented in art, it's kind of overrepresented in politics. It sort of seems to be the place that all these politicians like put on their phony accents to reach. Yeah, um,
2: Iowa caucuses and exactly. stuff. Exactly.
3: And yet the the person that they always seem to be addressing is like a white working class man. And I really wanted to insist that the Midwest is home to so many different people, not just that man. (laughs) And um, in fact, like it's more diverse than the U.S. is on average. And there are so many narratives that I could not tell as a white person that I hope uh, I hope people, politicians, artists, et cetera, start paying attention to.
2: And sort of a follow up to that as you move about the world and your L.A. life, do you feel like you're still bringing all those narratives, that sense of place coming from the Midwest with you? Is it still present for you?
3: Yeah, I think you can never really escape your childhood, um, the most formative experiences of your life. And I think I find it very difficult. Like I started writing, I, I found this to be true even uh, before I started writing The Rabbit Hutch*. that I would write something that was ostensibly set in New York and then it would immediately get pulled back into the Midwest. And yeah. um The next thing that I am working on is divided into three novellas. And the first one definitely takes place in a city, a city like mine. But the next two won't. And I think that will present a new challenge. But even when I am writing about another place, um, I'm certainly always influenced by the concerns, the images, the, yeah, the psychological landscape that developed for me there.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) And that was my next question. Your next project, is it also sort of using these themes of the Rust Belt? And is it moving in new directions with
3: that? It's in the early phases, but it is a departure for me. The first the first novella in it is, a, is sort of is about concerns that will be familiar, I think, to those who've read this book. But I, I'm trying to write more about, I guess this project began for me when I was trying to think about this kind of toxic white nostalgia that is fueling so many mm. contemporary politicians. And so it, it, that's where it began, but I think it's kind of, it's drifted toward quantum superposition and... Agriculture and a woman who's stalked by someone who saw her in a performance. So I I think it everything will be it'll be wandering a bit from from like these concerns.
0: Novelist Tess Gunty in conversation with Violet Barron. Tess Gunty's novel The Rabbit Hutch is set in Indiana and it won the 2022 National Book Award for Fiction. All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, poet and homeless outreach organizer Austin Davis reads from his new collection of poems. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Austin Davis is a poet and homeless outreach organizer in Phoenix, Arizona.
4: My new book was just released from Outcast Press. It's called Compulsive Swim, and it is a poetry novella about the fentanyl crisis, housing crisis and mental health crisis here in Arizona and all around the country. I have OCD and the book follows a character who is struggling with their obsessions and compulsions and trying to to fight them. Here in Arizona, there is no immediate emergency shelter for families facing housing insecurity and every week I get at least 3 to 5 calls from families who are possibly facing homelessness, mostly, you know, for the first time. Uh, This is a poem that I wrote about a family that I care about very deeply. And it's about this complicated issue. Layla and her kids sleep on a bridge that frowns over the freeway. Wrapped in blankets on a yellow slab of foam, the baby is silent despite the sirens. Cars whiz by below us and I pass Layla a smoke. So many people are off to house parties and hookups, horror movies and football games, her son Jace says. He spits off the guardrail the city put around the bridge to stop people from jumping. It lands on a windshield, and he laughs, and I laugh, and I smoke, and he doesn't. The car lessens to light, and I pretend I don't hear Jace when he asks, if joy is a currency we should spend all at once since we're bound to be robbed of it one of these nights. This next poem is the sixth poem from Act Three of Compulsive Swim. I used to make fun of you for watching the Weather Channel before bed, but I know it helped you sleep to empathize. I mean, it was smart to be prepared. 2,000 miles away, Florida might have faced a tornado. Because of you, I knew what day Chicago was unseasonably warm. And last June, during a flash flood in Dallas, a wave launched an ice cream truck into the food court of a shopping mall. To be honest, I never cared if it was cloudy outside our apartment or sunny at 3 a.m. I'd pour us a nightcap any time of day if you pull the blind shut and tell me how happy it makes you that it's swimming weather in Wisconsin.
0: That was poet and homeless outreach organizer, Austin Davis on WFIU's Poets Weave. We're gonna take another break and then try to figure out what work is really for anyway, as we keep searching for a missing cat. Stay with us. States, Alex Chambers. Up next, chapter three of the third time Rita left. It involves a drain pipe, a pillowcase, and plenty of people leaving work to help find Rita. Let's go. Grandpa. Grandpa. After Kate lost Rita, on, she walked and walked. Rita had run off into a wasteland filled with scrubby trees, tall grasses, abandoned houses. There were a million places for her to hide. Kate knew the odds that she would find her were slim, no matter how long she walked. They seemed even slimmer to Carl, since he'd seen a coyote out in the field a week after the escape.
5: And when I saw that coyote, I thought, oh, well, maybe she is dead. And, of course, if she was caught by a coyote, she's not only dead, but she's not going to be found because she would have been eaten.
0: He didn't tell Kate. He just kept looking. Kate and Carl spent a lot of time in those fields. How did they account for that time? They weren't working. They weren't sleeping or cooking or even really taking care of anyone they weren't exactly enjoying themselves either. They were just wandering around, calling for Rita. You can't really call that time productive. They're not making things. They're not taking care of things. It's extra. In a way, Kate and Carl and all the people helping them were spending time outside reality. At least outside economic reality, which is probably a good place to be. It was a place where searching for Rita was valuable even if they'd probably end up empty-handed. Anyway, all of this is to say, Kate wasn't the only one who left work to help find Rita.
5: I was at work, and I got a frantic phone call from Kate. And she said that she had taken the cats to the vet and that Rita had escaped in the parking lot and that Rita had disappeared into the into the underbrush behind the strip mall. So... I rode my bike to work at that time and I worked on the far other side of town. So uh I recall getting telling my boss about the situation and her saying, Oh well, you better go. She understood the gravity of the situation. She was a pet owner, dog owner, and I you know, I think pet owners have a I don't know, a shared world view, I suppose.
6: I love animals more than most people. Like meaning, I love animals more than I love people generally, and so and especially cats. <laughs> I really love cats.
0: As the effects of the calamity spiraled out, more and more people got caught up in it. Amanda Nicky was Kate's boss at the time,
6: and so I went immediately.
0: Amanda was the director of a local nonprofit. When I interviewed her, she still worked there, although she's since left. On the surface, the nonprofit's main service was providing food to people who were hungry. But there was a secret mission as well, because Amanda understood that if you really wanted to end hunger, you needed to end economic injustice. Equally important for you to understand now, though, is that last time I looked at the staff pictures, every staff member was photographed with their pet. I think that says something. Anyway. That day, in the fall of 2016, they'd gotten a group text at the office.
6: But maybe it was a phone call. I don't remember. But it was an urgent, like, can someone please help me?
0: So Amanda went. Right then. And if you've listened to chapter one, you know what happened next. They searched and searched and didn't find her. But I want to get back to the fact that Amanda left work. She had an organization to run. Were you leaving work regularly?
6: Yeah, yeah. I think that like you know I'm the boss I can do what I want but there's also like this idea of like this was something important going on in Kate's life and she was my employee but she's also my friend and like something that guides us in our organization is understanding our humanity and being real people and humans and like allowing that to happen and be in the space where we work and like Everyone has had their missing cat or equivalent in their lives, and that's allowed to, like, be real and take up space here. So, hell yeah, we were leaving work to go look for the cat.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was very important work. As important as feeding people? I don't know. Maybe, if it means being able to go back day after day to a job that puts you face to face with how our society allows so many of its people to go hungry.
6: Even in normal times, like we do hard work that's like difficult to sit with and we don't get paid a lot of money and there's not a lot of fancy perks unless you like radishes or whatever. I don't
0: know, which I do, but. It has to be about more than radishes in the end, right? even if that radish is the first crunchy vegetable you can pull from your garden in the spring. A fresh radish can be a thing of beauty, but so can knowing that people have your back.
6: In the way that we cultivate community outwardly, we do that internally as an organization too. And so that means like feeling safe and supported enough to say, I can't make pies today for this workshop, I have to go find my cat. And knowing that that's okay,
0: I don't
6: know. What is work, really?
0: (laughs) Amanda's skeptical about work culture, but she really believes in taking care of people. And maybe that's what real work is. Which is why she ran this organization, and why she wanted to change how we talk about hunger, and why, at the same time, she was ready to pick up and head out when Kate got a phone call. Someone had seen Rita.
1: And I, I felt pretty certain that they had actually seen her because they had seen the picture of her. They said it really, they were very certain that it was her.
0: She made more flyers.
1: And handed them out to pretty much every single household in the Peppergrass development. <laughs> we put them on every door. And it's this small community made up of these really quaint duplexes.
0: So Kate heads over to Peppergrass. The neighborhood is laid out in loops, and at the center of the biggest loop, there's a green space that slopes down behind the houses. There are pine trees, then drain pipes, and gravel and weeds at the bottom. That's where Kate went. That's where Kate hoped to find Rita, like she'd hoped at 5 a.m. at Kroger, like she'd hoped at the abandoned houses where Rita first disappeared, because... She was scared,
1: and she was on her own, and she needed to be brought home.
0: She got to Peppergrass as fast as she could.
1: And I had cat food... I had a um, pillowcase with me, thinking if I do catch her, I'm gonna put her in this pillowcase. And so I start walking, looking for her, and I see her off in the distance. Like,
0: like it's actually her.
1: It's actually her. And I start calling her.
3: Rita, Rita, it's me, it's me. Come Rita, come on Rinda. hi kitty kitty. kitty. Rita, it's me, it's me. Rida,
2: come on, Hi, kitty, kitty, kitty. Rida, Rida.
1: And so she sees me, and she starts meowing. And she doesn't run. She's just meowing. And so I approach slowly, and I'm still, like, talking to her and singing, and I'm crying a little bit. And I have this thing where I can't really roll my R's. It's just this thing I've never been able to do. And so I always try to practice rolling my R's with her name. Rita. I thought she might recognize that. And I walked up to her, and she did not run from me. I mean, she looked hesitant, but she must have recognized me because she didn't run. And then I just reached down and grabbed her, and I held her by the scruff of her neck, you know, like you do with cats to kind of help control them. And then I was like, okay, I need to get her into this pillowcase. And, like, all these thoughts are racing through my head. Oh, my God, I can't believe it's her. I can't believe I have her. This is incredible. And so I'm trying to, like, push her into this pillowcase while still sort of holding on to her. And she's a pretty big cat, and she's pretty strong, and she was fighting like crazy, and she somehow busted out of my grip.
0: And ran. In to the drain pipe. Kate tells the story as if she was alone at that moment. But Amanda remembers being there. As much as she cared about helping her friend, she was also drawn in by the quest.
6: I like a problem, like I like I like an expedition, and so it was like, I don't know, it felt like we're gonna go find the ring or whatever. Like it felt like exciting.
0: Carl remembers being there too, because he had to talk to his boss again.
5: He said, Oh, it sounds like Kate has seen the cat, so I'm gotta go. And she said, Yep, you gotta go.
0: Memory is tricky. When you've heard a story told over and over, it's easy to start imagining you were there. But also, when you go through something intense, you might not remember all the details clearly. Were Amanda and Carl there when Rita was in Kate's arms, and then, a moment later, gone again? We'll leave that particular black box unopened. But they both remember what went through their heads.
5: Why didn't Kate hold on tighter, you know? Why don't you dig your claws into the scruff of her neck and get her onto your shirt or whatever, you know? Were you mad? Uh, yeah, a little. Or or disappointed, maybe is better. I tend not to feel anger toward people I'm close to, but but I was definitely... I was definitely second guessing what she failed to accomplish. Yeah, I I was definitely sad that that it wasn't over at that point.
6: Kate is so thoughtful and like confident, but in that moment she was like, I did I was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. Like and it was really hard to see her be so hard on herself when like this is a cat who did not want to come home yet. She was not done. <laughs> Like, she was having fun and, you know, had more stuff to do.
0: As she made clear when, a few minutes later, she dashed out from the drain pipe, leaped over the food they had put out for her, didn't even pause to sniff it, and ran off between two houses into another part of the neighborhood. She was gone. Again. And if you're keeping track, you're right. That was the fourth time Rita left. Amanda left, too. She did have an organization to run. Kate and Carl stayed in the neighborhood for a while longer, but there was no more sign. That sighting, though, was a major change in the search. Now they knew for sure that Rita was alive and, for the moment, surviving. They didn't have to wonder anymore if she had died and their search was futile. Because for those first couple months, that was the hardest part. Carl said if they'd known Rita had been killed by a car in front of their house, they could have mourned the loss, been sad in the way that you're sad when you lose a pet, and then moved on. But with Rita missing, there was no closure. Before that first sighting, and there would be more it really felt like Schrodinger's cat. That thought experiment where a cat is put into a black box. If a monitor detects a certain radioactive decay, a flask of poison is released and it kills the cat. Until the box is opened, you can't know what state the cat is in. For the observer, the cat is simultaneously dead and alive.
5: It's precisely that epistemic state. There's no way to know. And so there's no point in mourning because... I was hopeful that she was still alive, and there was no sense in giving up because I thought she was still alive, but there was also a a sort of futility to it, and that was an emotional drag for sure. And that
0: is probably the best explanation as to why Kate and Carl found themselves digging up a dead cat that they were already pretty sure was not Brita. Here's what happened. Kate and Carl had been putting up posters, posting on listservs, listing Rita on social media. And because of all that posting and listing, someone reached out. They had found a dead cat that matched Rita's description, and they'd buried her in their backyard.
1: And uh, they said that we could dig it up if we wanted to check.
0: It was in a part of town it was hard to imagine Rita getting to. It was the opposite direction of where she'd run, and she would have had to cross a busy street and go through a bunch of neighborhoods to get there.
1: But I felt like we had to know if it was her or not. And so Carl and I decided we were going to go. We were going to dig up this dead cat's body and that we needed to take our son Cosmo with us because if she had died, we thought it would be good for him to actually see the body so that he could have closure or something.
0: (laughs) So they head down there. It was on that road. You know the one. It's the one called that road.
1: So we went to the corner of Rogers and that road and it was like a younger woman and she answered the door and she was like, yeah, just right over there. And she kind of pointed to where she had buried the cat. And so we dug it up.
0: It wasn't Rita.
1: Yeah, it was really recognizable. You could tell by the fur that it was not our cat.
0: So they put it back in the ground.
1: We were relieved, but also kind of horrified that we had just exhumed this cat grave.
0: <laughs> the relief and horror were mixed with another emotion, too. Whatever it was, it was the opposite of closure. But they'd seen her at the drain pipes. They knew that for at least a couple months, she'd been out there on her own, making it on the streets of suburban Bloomington. How is she doing it?
7: If she didn't have a lot of experience hunting, she may have had some challenges getting enough food. Perhaps she was either finding strangers to help take care of her or finding sometimes cats who are lost or abandoned find a feral colony where someone is providing food. And so they kind of just hitch along for that ride and and hope that they can get some scraps. Um, She could have turned to hunting. She may have had enough skills to get enough to get by.
0: This is Dr. Michael Delgado. She's a cat behavior consultant and author and researcher. She's the one who, in our last chapter, dashed my hopes that Rita remembered Kate from back when Rita was a kitten. But I pushed through my disappointment to find out how cats learn to survive in the suburban wild. So hunting is a learned skill?
7: Yes. So kittens do get exposure to hunting from their mother. She will bring them prey that is kind of wounded, um, less... um, Potent, I guess, and then allows the kittens to practice killing. So it is something that they have to practice. They don't necessarily need mom to learn how to hunt if they can practice. So it's not like if mom's not around, they're just out of luck. This is an innate behavior that that they need to do to survive. So it's there's probably multiple ways for them to achieve that goal of learning to be a competent hunter. One of them is that mom helps you along. But the other is just that you're naturally attracted to small objects that move and you have all these skills that you apply to them like biting and pouncing and batting and kicking. But they do need to practice and they need to learn about the movements of their prey and how to sneak up on them best and what kind of bites are going to be most efficient at killing. Exposure to prey and practice hunting is really what makes you a good hunter.
0: Rita had been an indoor-outdoor cat the whole time she'd lived with Kate. Kate said before she ran off, she'd brought plenty of prey into the house for Kate to witness. After the encounter at Peppergrass, it seemed clear she'd figured that one out
7: obviously, you know, it can't be too hard for them to become good at it because otherwise the species would die out and cats are very successful. So we know that they're good hunters, perhaps too good if you ask some ecologists. (laughs) So, so yeah, I mean, it is really what they evolved to do. That is like their one job is to kill small birds and rodents. They're, they're good at it.
0: Odds are it's because cats are good at it that Kate was able to meet up with Rita at Peppergrass. That should have been the end of the story. But it wasn't, and it's not the end of ours either. There's one more piece in this chapter. Remember, Rita went missing in early fall 2016. She was still missing in November. And a lot has happened since then, so let's remember what things were like back in those pre-pandemic days. We were in the midst of a presidential election whose outcome seemed foregone to many people. As I've said in earlier chapters, to many people, it seemed like the U.S. was about to elect its first female president. For the folks who were excited about that, there was some nail-biting, but there was mostly a whole lot of confidence. We might even call it hubris now, in hindsight. Over at work, Amanda was making plans.
6: What we had decided was that the day after the election, we would have... And again, because I, th- I think we were all like, this is going to be a celebration, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be so exciting. And so we were going to have like a waffle bar type thing. <laughs> like we're going to make waffles and we're going to have all these fancy toppings for waffles. And instead, Trump won. And we all came in and we made waffles and wept all morning. Shortly after, there was an SNL skit with, I think her name is Kate McKinnon, and she sang, as Hillary sang, Hallelujah. It was like really stabbing funny, but also like deeply mournful. And I've been thinking about that a lot because that's like, we had no idea that like this would be like how we all collectively felt. For years afterward.
1: Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
0: Hallelujah.
6: I don't know. Like, when I think about it, it's like I love waffles, but they're hard to eat now. And I love waffles. But it's hard, you know, if I make waffles at home, the smell of the waffle maker, it's like crying in everyone's arms the day after the election in 2016.
1: Rita was lost in September, and in November, there was the election and Trump was elected, it was a shock. It was something that I couldn't understand how it had happened. And I was just filled with so much despair. And I think that the despair around the loss of my cat was really connected.
0: Do you feel like your feelings about her missing like got stronger after that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I just, it was like a deep sadness and it wasn't like, like what I would call clinical depression or anything. Like I was doing my life, but underneath it was just this deep sense of despair and it was connected to the, to the election. And it was, I just felt like if only I could find my cat, something would be good,
0: you know? (laughs) Things go wrong in life. You finally get your missing cat into your arms. You're ready to take her home. And she leaps into a drainpipe. I think the past few years have reminded us that stories of progress don't always turn out so well. Deadly diseases still circulate. There are heat domes in the south, wildfires in the north. That fall, Kate and Carl and Amanda had gotten their hopes up. And then the story went off in another direction. That's how Amanda felt, at least after Rita jumped out of Kate's arms.
6: That's not how that's supposed to end. (laughs) Like, it just felt like, here's the happy ending, and then it just, it didn't happen.
0: We've made it to the end of the chapter, but I want to remind you, all hope is not yet lost. At last sighting, Rita was still alive. Maybe not thriving, but alive. There would be more elections. And anyway, as a lot of people realized, trying to transform your society through the White House maybe wasn't the best plan in the first place. At this point in our story, there's more work to do, whether you're in the office or out wandering through the fields, calling for someone who may not even be out there. Still, you keep going, and you keep putting word out about what you're looking for. Eventually, you hear back.
1: We got a call from a guy who said he thought he had seen her in his horse barn behind his house. And it wasn't in pepper grass, but it was not far from there. I could picture her traveling that distance.
0: What happened at the horse barn? That's coming up in the final chapter of the third time Rita left next week here on Interstates. Interstates comes to you from the studios of WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. We've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up, but first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. Most of the music in the Rita story is by Ramon Monras Sender. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Tess Gunty, Austin Davis, and Luann Johnson and Romain Rubinas Dorsey of WFIU's Poets Weave. Alright, time for some found sound. Parking Garage with Trombone, recorded by Kate Young. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening.